this evening before Anthony's lesson is Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 11. Romans 6, 1 through 11. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died, <clears throat> for one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin, once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to, Christ, to God in Christ Jesus. Okay, church, you ready to go? Are you sure? Did you get your nap today? Anna, yeah? It was like 4.51 and I went upstairs and I was like, not enough time. You just make me angry. Stay away from it. Well, it's good to see you all. Good to be with our family tonight. We're almost finished with our series on the way of salvation. I hope that it's been um, thought-provoking and helpful to you, even of those of you that are Christians, um, maybe even been Christians for a while. The process of becoming fully like Christ is the end goal of salvation, really to be delivered from what we are cursed by, our sin, back to the original state that we were created in, in godly fashion, in godly form. And so, for Christ to come and for Jesus to save us, the end goal is that you and I will be transformed from the inside out to become again the image of God seen in Jesus Christ. And so, um, that is a lifetime process. And as we have been talking about these, um, as we have once known them as steps of salvation, we're trying to call them practices of salvation because the steps that we've so commonly known as in our fellowship, hear, believe, repent, confess, and be baptized, have often um, been seen as one-time momentary steps that enter you into the family of God and then they're left behind. And really, they are practices of a faithful believer in Christ that they practice the rest of their life. And so, we're coming to the point now, we're at commitment time. You know, much of what we've talked about are practices that happen in any form of belief, whether it's a church or not. Things like confession, you know, telling people what you believe in. Things like repentance. Things like belief and hearing. You know, you can actually not be a Christian um, and go to, like, let's say, a Dave Ramsey seminar. And you can hear, believe, you can confess, you know, tell other people, tell your spouse about it. And you can even repent. You can stop spending more than you make, and you can change your lifestyle behaviors. And so those are practices that can dive you into something like maybe a Dave Ramsey conference. But where we're at now is something a little bit unique. 
especially to Christianity. We're at the point of commitment. The time in which you say you are either in or out, you're yes or you're no. The process of saying yes to God and no to sin is a lifelong process. And the practices that we've discussed so far, like hearing, believing, confessing, and repenting, are practices that empower the process of saying yes to God. But tonight, we're going to discuss that moment when a person says, I'm in, I'm all in. And that moment is baptism. We're going to see clearly from the text that this is when we tell God yes, that we're all in. You know, there's a lot that we can say about the Christian practice of baptism. I would have a great time if this could be like a two to three hour lecture, maybe about um, the practice, the mode, the historical doctrinal differences across Christendom over the last thousand or two thousand years, but that's not really what we're here for tonight. We're here to break the bread of life, the word of God together, but here's what I'm convinced of, that if we do a good job of understanding our text tonight, that a lot of the logistical questions that revolve around baptism, that get kind of confused and lost in different denominational teachings, actually if you just do a good job with the text, you'll really begin to see those fade away and understand it. So if we'll do a good job with the text, I believe that most of our questions will be answered. If you have some lingering questions, I'd be more than happy to spend some time with you and talk with you through this. Baptism is um, such a vital part of the Christian's life Um, as we see through the scripture. There's three things that I've got to do by way of introduction, um, just because this is a basic foundational teaching on the doctrine of baptism, I've got to lay some groundwork that we don't necessarily get out of Romans 6, 1 through 11. I still want to teach that to you, but there's some basic things that I want to lay as a doctrinal foundation for the church that meets at Pickerington. Those are the necessity, the mode, and the candidacy. Let me explain quickly what those mean revolving around baptism. But first of all, start with necessity. Um, Here at the church, at Pickerington Church, we do teach and we hold to the belief that baptism is necessary for a person on their journey to salvation. Again, after we dig into Romans 6 tonight, I think when you hear what Paul has to say about baptism in the road of the believer's life, you're going to see that, you're going to agree with that statement that baptism is a necessary element on the person's journey to salvation. We believe that Scripture reveals clearly that Christian baptism is the biblical answer to a believer who is desiring to join him or herself to Christ. For a person longing to be connected to Jesus Christ, in every instance in the Bible we see a person who is pursuing Christ, who wants to be joined to Christ, we see the process of Christian baptism being taking place. And so to enjoin oneself to Christ, they must have, as the Bible says in Acts 22, their sins washed away, and a person must be resurrected to a newly constituted life. Baptism is always the associated process by which washing away of sins and resurrection of new life takes place. And so that's why we teach that baptism is a necessary step for a person on their journey to be coming fully in Christ. The second thing I want to talk about is the mode. This won't take too long. Um, the only method of baptism that you actually see in the scripture, the mode, the, pra- the way it's done, is full body immersion. Um, baptism actually is a Greek word that is just brought to the English language and transmitted. And really, the Greek word is baptizo, and so they just took that word and they just made it into the English, and they just sort of call it baptized. But really, the, the best 
exact translation if we were to take the Greek word and make it over here to 5,000 Mason. It means to dip down into, to plunge, to fully immerse. That's what the word means. Not only from just an etymology standpoint do we understand what the word means, but in every instance in the Bible we see the idea of washing, even in the Old Testament. And baptism in the New Testament appears. The baptism of John, which is unto repentance, or the baptism of Christ, it's always full immersion of the body in a full body of water. That's the way that it's done. And so uh, we practice that as well here at the Pickerington Church. The last thing we're going to talk about, so you've got the necessity and the mode, but the candidacy. Who should be baptized? It's a great question. Um, and it's one that differs across the board. And so I wanted just to make some clarifying remarks about this. And if you have any additional questions, I am so open and happy to talk to you about this and explain it further. But the candidacy of baptism. You know, the only participants that we see in Scripture, the only people that actually participate in Christian baptism are those people that are pursuing, believing, and inquiring individuals. So, by conclusion to that fact, that, that the people that practice baptism are those that are seeking people, that are believing people, and that are inquiring people, that are digging into it and pursuing Christ, those individuals that are doing that on their own, that want to come to Christ, we baptize those people. So, by conclusion, um, we don't practice what is known as infant baptism or, or consecration. Now, this is not because... We don't want our children dedicated to the Lord. That's not why we don't do that. This is also not because we um, don't want our children to be blessed. We simply do with children exactly what Jesus did with children. We pray over them. We pray for them. We draw them to us. That's why in our audience, you, those of you who have been here on Sunday mornings and you know um, heard the choir that sings, not up here but out there, we've got a beautiful chorus of lovely children. There goes one right now. Wrong key, Luke. It was in C. <laughs> you know why we do that? I, I know it's hard. I know. Especially if you don't have kids anymore. I know it can be a little like... The reason we do that is because we want our children to be blessed. We, we want our children here. Jesus said when the disciples were trying to keep children away from him, he literally said out of his mouth, bring the kids to me. Bring the little children to me. Let them sit on my lap. And he prayed over them. He put his hands on them. He blessed them. And he prayed for them. And so that's what we want to do with our children. Not because we believe that our children are never do anything wrong, so they don't need baptism uh, someday in their life. We believe that they're in an innocent state. There's innocence in a child. Not guiltlessness. Hang out at my house for a little bit. You'll figure that out. But there's innocence in a child. And innocence is lost. Here's when you know this. You know this intuitively. Innocence is lost the moment there's awareness. You know, a good statement we say, like, sometimes to our kids is if you have to ask, you already know the answer. You know, somebody like, can I, right? Can I, can I do this? Should I do this? If you have to ask, you already know the answer. So awareness eliminates innocence if you know right and wrong. And so we don't believe that our children are always never doing anything wrong. We believe that there's in a state of innocence. And so innocence is lost in awareness. And that comes at different times 
for different people. And so because of that, we don't practice just not infant baptism. We also don't have a standard catechism at a particular age. It says when you reach a certain age, you must go through our catechism. And at the end of this catechism, we have a consecration, a dedication service for a particular child at a particular age. We don't do that either because we believe awareness of sin comes at different times for different people. And so here's what we do. We teach, we teach, and we teach. And we pray that the Lord, our Savior, will convert people to Christ. And when a person hears, believes, begins to confess what they believe about themselves and about God, and is repenting in their mind and in their life, and they come and they say, I want to be joined to Christ, what should I do? We answer just like the rest of the Bible answers. We say, okay, now's the time to be all in with them. And to be baptized into Christ. So that is the necessity, the mode, and the candidacy. And that's our understanding from Scripture about why we do that. And again, I'm available. Our elders are available. Matt is available to talk to you about that if you have any questions. So let's get to the text um, and dig into it because this is a fun one. This is a text that preachers love because it outlines like five different ways. So I've done all five. We're going to do all five. Just kidding. We're not going to do it. It outlines a lot of ways. We're going to try to get to the heart of the matter tonight about baptism. Um, this text sets up pretty interestingly in the beginning. Verses 1 and 2 introduce us to the primary question of the text and the primary answer in a very, very quick way. And the verse 11 wraps up this summary with the primary conclusion. So you've got the question, the answer, and the conclusion all tied up on the ends, bookending the middle, which is a beautiful explanation of how we get to God's conclusion. Verse 11 is God's conclusion. If you read this with me, it says, uh, um, excuse me, so you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. That is the conclusion that we're wanting to get to. And it introduces us first with a question, then it gives us the answer. Look at the question in verse 1. What do we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And um, whether this was a direct question asked to the Apostle Paul or just an inferred question that Paul was using to make a teaching point, don't know, don't really care. The question is valid and is good. Should a person who is now in Christ continue to be in sin? What he's saying is, should we who are now in Christ remain the same as we were when we were outside of Christ? If we are outside of Christ a certain place, should we remain the same once we are in Christ? That's what he's saying when he says, should we who are now, um, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Should we continue in sin? And when we're talking about the journey of salvation to really being transformed or converted to becoming a new person, that's a great question. Are you to remain the same before, before Christ that you are after Christ? Now, you can probably answer this, but Paul does it for us in verse 2 when he says a lot of different ways, may it never be, or by no means. He's basically saying, no. Should, should we continue to be in sin if we've now become Christians? The answer is really simple. It's no. And he answers it with a rhetorical question by this means. He says, how can we, who have died to sin, live any longer in it? And that question has some power to it because what he means by this is this. How can we who have died to sin 
then continue to, when he says live, he means rededicate yourself to sin, to give yourself to sin, to live for sin. How can you continue to identify with sin because that's not who you are anymore? That's not who you live for. That's not why you live. That's not what you live for anymore. So if you've died to sin, how can you keep living to sin? And what Paul is doing is making a very simple argument for us. Very, very airtight philosophical argument is this. If dying to sin has occurred in your life, continuing to dedicate yourself to sin is actually impossible. He's saying either you are dying to sin and realize you're dying, or you are living to sin and dying to God. They're exclusive. They're mutually exclusive ideas. So you can't actually die to sin and continue to live to sin. One or the other has to be happening in your life. And so naturally, Paul assumes this need. How can we keep the dying to sin active in our life? So when you heard that we're talking about baptism tonight, those of you that have been baptized, I hope and pray that you have turned off the switch of listening because what Paul is doing for us here is by way of teaching us the importance of baptism, teaching us the importance throughout our entire life. He's making this statement that if you have died to sin, that word died means it's in the aorist tense, meaning it happened in the past and the effect continues for the rest of your life. It happened in a point in the past, continues to have effects. So what he's saying is you're continuing to die to sin daily. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, I die daily, continuing to die to sin. And so, either you're dying to sin or you're living to sin, and the question is, how can you keep dying to sin an active ingredient in your life? And his solution is pretty simple. What Paul wants to do is to anchor you to the depth, the beauty, and the majesty of your baptism. Paul knows the significance of this event in a person's life. The metaphors are just abundant surrounding excuse me, the idea of baptism. If you look through scripture, it says that baptism is the death to the sinner. But it also says it's the, the birth to a believer. He teaches us it's the marriage of the soul to Christ. It's the resurrection of the original intent that God had for your life. And it's the washing away of your sin. And so, understanding your baptism is key. And for the rest of your life, if you'll contemplate and meditate and be anchored to that moment in your life when you were all in and what it means, and you're going to see in this text that there's incredible depth to what it means. That it will actually have the power to continue to transform you to become like Christ, if you'll do that. Those of you that have been Christians for a while, maybe after five or ten years, have you ever gone back and thought, you know, what I understand now, I wonder if I should be baptized again? Have you ever had that thought? Uh, I know I have. And what Paul is saying here is that the depth of baptism has so much meaning that for the rest of your life you'll contemplate it. What really took place and what continues to take place. So let's dig into it. Verses, it breaks down pretty easy. We're going to see a portrait um, of salvation and baptism in verses 3 through 5. We're going to see the process that we engage in, and then we're going to see the person that we're baptized into in this text. Let's, let's do verses 3 through 5, first of all. Let's see the portrait of baptism. He says this, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. 
You see, the very first thing that baptism does for us, the reason it's at the entry point here, is that it is the beautiful imagery of how you are actually saved. How you're actually saved. You see, the crucial moment of our salvation was one when Jesus Christ died on the cross, was buried in a rich man's tomb, and then three days later raised from the dead. In that moment, Paul said in Romans 4 that our justification was signed, sealed, and delivered. It was guaranteed, Romans 4, 26, that upon the resurrection of Jesus Christ, God accepted the sacrifice. And so, you and I, our salvation, Christianity, rests 100% on the work of Jesus Christ's death, burial, and then resurrection. And in baptism, you put on display the work of Jesus Christ in death, in his burial, in his resurrection. Physically, that's what you do. You stand in the grave of water, you are buried into that water, and you're raised, as the Bible says, to walk in the newness of life. Do you see that, the beautiful work of Jesus? But baptism is more than just a reenactment of the work of Christ. Baptism is the display, the public display, and the personal display of the unification of yourself with Christ. Notice how many times the word with is in our passage. Do you notice how many times the word with is said? It's said we are buried with Christ. We are united with Christ. We are crucified with Christ. We died with Christ. And we live with Christ. Up until this point, Romans has been clearly, Paul's been saying to us over and over that the work of Christ is our only hope. Romans 3, Romans 4, Romans 5, that the work of Jesus Christ is our only hope. And so baptism is when you enter into union, not with your death and your burial, because with those two there is no resurrection, but with his death, burial, and resurrection. You notice what he says in verse 3, that we have been baptized not into your death, but his death. Now we're going to get to your old self being crucified, but he first starts with this, that you are not baptized into your own death, but to his death. That's where you're being unified. And then he says that you are buried with him. Now this word is beautiful. It's got a, an agricultural phrase to it. It really means to be like you take a seed and you plant it with something. So he's saying you are planted together in the grave with Jesus Christ. Now, the point of planting something is not that it would just remain in the ground, but that it might sprout up and resurrect to some new form of life. And so he says, you can't resurrect to a new form of life, to a reconstituted heart and mind, if you aren't buried with Christ. The key is that you're with Jesus Christ, that you understand his death, his burial, and his resurrection. Your entire Christianity rests upon you understanding and associating for the rest of your life what Jesus Christ did on the cross, the tomb, and coming out of the tomb. And baptism is you saying, I am completely associating myself with his death, his burial, his resurrection, because that's the one that I want. Baptism is you placing all of your chips, your entire bet, on Jesus Christ and no longer placing your bet on yourself. We're all betting on something. We can't tell the future. We don't know what's going to happen. We're not God. We're finite creatures. And every one of us are placing bets 
on something in front of us. Most often we place the bets on ourselves that our ability, our opportunities, our, 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 um, uh, what's in front of us. What baptism is doing is saying, I'm placing all of my chips in Jesus Christ. 100%. You see, baptism is not what you do to save yourself. Baptism is what you do when you finally realize that you can't save yourself on your own. And it's only the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus that you must be united to. And the way you get united to it is through the waters of baptism. Now, Paul doesn't stop there. You see, baptism to Paul is not this one-time portrayal or act of religion that punches your ticket to a better eternity than what you would have if you didn't go through this ritual ceremony. Baptism is more than just a ceremony. It's more than just a ritual. Baptism actually introduces you not just to a union with Jesus, but to a process with Jesus. Look in verses 6 through 8. So we don't just have here in baptism a portrait of salvation. We've got a, a process of sanctification. Verse 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. Do you see what he's inviting you into? You see, the, the big mistake of baptism is that it's oftentimes seen as just a one-time ceremonial washing that just solves everything and then you just move on and forget about it. What Paul is doing is saying baptism, first and foremost, portrays the death of Jesus, portrays your union with him, and is your pledge of a good conscience towards God that you're unified to Jesus Christ. But it's also the place that you are brought into the process by which you become fully like Jesus. Look in verse 6. He says, we know, now, now listen to the tense of the verbs. He says, we know that our old self, was crucified, past tense, with him. What he's getting after is that the old man of us, the old woman of us, the person of us that lived for, that, that um, was obedient to, that loved sin, that if we'll come to Christ, hung on the cross with Christ. Here's what that means. That that old self, if it hung on the cross with Christ, means that it doesn't have to hang on a cross by itself. If your old self is not unified to the, to the cross that Jesus hung on, it still has a cross that needs to hang on. If your old self wants to go at it all by itself and do it all by itself, that means that you are going to be walking down the path to your own cross without Jesus Christ. It has to be punished. Sin must be punished. God is a just God. But he says our old self, when we're unified with Christ, actually hangs with him. That's where it dies. And when it dies, it has a purpose. If you're unified with Christ, look at the purpose. My sin-filled, corrupted self, when it is crucified with Christ the day that he was, this matters because it has a purpose. He says that we were crucified with him in order that, or so that, the body of sin might be brought to nothing. Now, why did he change the phrase? You see, Paul first said our old self. Then he says the body of sin. Why did he change the, the phrase? Why not the body? Why didn't he say the body of sin and the body of sin and the old self and the old self? He's trying to make a point. 
That there's a self of you that was owned and lived for sin. And if you unify with Christ and understand who he is, that will hang on the cross with Jesus. But your body that still practices sin from time to time must be destroyed. And so he says that body must be, um, the body of sin must be brought to nothing. Brought to nothing means that which still practices sin must finally be rendered idle in your life. It's got to stop. It's got to be brought down to where it's not running anymore. That's what that word means, brought to nothing. It doesn't just mean that it's like cut off and leave it. No, it means you have to think about it. This is why sin, after baptism, doesn't just instantaneously go away. It means that what he's saying is it's got to be drained down to the point where it stops, the engine stops running. Brought to idol. Brought to nothing. And the process is what he's inviting you into. And so baptism is you agreeing to enter the process of sin being eliminated in your life. It's a covenant agreement that I am going to go into the process with Christ of having all my sin chiseled out of my life. Gone. Yes, the painful parts. Yes, the parts that I don't want exposed. Yes, anything that separates me from God, I want gone. And not only is it being washed away, but for the rest of my life it's going to be sanctified and chiseled away. Peter said it in a really interesting way. In 1 Peter uh, 2.24, he said, He himself, Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the tree for a reason. That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. But you know, Peter, in that statement, which kind of repeats what Paul says, that Jesus went to the cross carrying our sin so that we would die to sin, the power of sin, and live to righteousness. But the major question then is, well, how, right? If baptism is this process that I engage in, I'm born into this new life, how do I do that? And Peter adds this phrase that is so beautiful. It comes from Isaiah 53 that tells you how. He says, by his wounds... We are healed by his wounds. See, what he's getting at is the man that stood and took the lashes and the man that stood and wore the thorn of, of the crown of thorns and the man that stood and carried the cross and the man that took the nails, his wounds are the very power that heal active tense you. So not only does it empower your blood to wash away sin from you so that you're no longer guilty before God and you are free to stand in front of Him as righteous, the wounds of Jesus Christ still have the power of potency to lead you out of sin for the rest of your life. By His wounds, you are present tense, active tense, healed. You see, I think what he's saying is the more you understand the wounds... The more you meditate on the wounds, the more you ponder the wounds, the more you think about the wounds, the older you get, you get, the more heinous you see sin, and the more you realize that your sin gave him the wounds, the more you learn to hate sin and love him. And by his wounds, you'll progressively, patiently, enduringly be healed. And what baptism is, is saying, I'm, I'm going to partake in the process of having my sinful wounds healed. I'm in to walk with Christ. And this is why Paul would finish his thoughts on baptism, not with uh, another ordinance or clarifying some minute details about it. But listen how Paul finishes this in verses 9 and 10. He finishes not with just some instruction, 
he finishes with a person. Verse 9, he says this. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Listen, that has nothing to do with whether you believe it or not. That is a fact. Jesus Christ died, was buried, rose again to life, and he lives forever and will never die again. That, whether you believe that or not, doesn't matter to Christ in the sense that it's true. That's a fact about Jesus Christ. And now he says that because of that, being raised from the dead, he'll never die again. Death no longer has any power, any dominion over him. The power of death is completely gone. And then he says this in verse 10. For the death that he died, he died to sin. Once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. There's a great parallel of language here that Paul is using. It's almost poetic. I believe it is poetic. When he says the death he died, he died to sin. But in a mirror image, the life he lived, he lived to God. He lives to God. Present tense. The death he died. What kind of death is that? What is this death all about? You see, it's very important that you understand the death of Jesus. It's so vital that you understand the death that he died because he says that you're united in his death in baptism. You're buried with him by baptism into his death. And so if you don't understand his death, your baptism is putting you into something that you have no idea what it's putting you into. What kind of death did he die? And what did it do? Isaiah 53 says it best, and I would do you a disservice if I didn't just let you listen to it. Isaiah 53, um, I would encourage you just to, just to listen, okay? Listen to the death of Christ. Who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he, Jesus, grew up before him as a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was, I'm going to replace he with Jesus. Jesus was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces. Jesus was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely Jesus has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteem him to be stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But Jesus was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him the chastisement that brought us peace. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on Jesus the iniquity of us all. Jesus was oppressed and Jesus was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so Jesus did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, Jesus was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people, they made Jesus' grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death. Although Jesus had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush Jesus. Jesus has put, he, God has put Jesus to grief. 
when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of Jesus' soul he shall see, but he's satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous servant, Jesus, make many people be accounted to be righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong. You know what that means? He'll divide the spoil? He's a victor in battle, and he's going to bring back the spoil and divide it, even though he's the one that won the victory. Because Jesus poured out his soul to death, and he was numbered, counted to be with the transgressors. Yet Jesus bore the sin of many, and makes intercession for the transgressors. What is his death all about? The death he died, he died to sin, in the direction of sin, towards sin. You see, sin in this passage is not presented as a behavior problem. Sin in Romans 6 is presented biblically as a power by which you serve. And Jesus pointed at the power of sin and said, I'll die your death, sin. I'll be counted with your death, sin. And in the grave I'll be buried, but I'll raise and I'll live towards God. Now think about this. The death he died, he died to sin. The life he lives, he lives towards God in connection, in service to God. And in response to this, in Romans chapter 6, listen to the conclusion. It's the only conclusion that you can come up with. If you really understand what he's saying, and your baptism and what it attaches you to, so you, here's, the, here's your commandment, so you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. What is the only way you can be dead to sin and alive to God if you're in Christ Jesus? What is the only way to be in Christ Jesus? Do you not know it is that many of us were baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death, Therefore, we were buried with him into baptism, by baptism, into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in the newness of life. Do you understand what baptism is for? It is not some mystical water that washes that has nothing to do with Jesus. It is the commitment of a soul that says, I trust him, and I want him to wash me, and I will walk with him for the rest of my life as he chisels away all of the sin of my life because the death he died, he died to sin. The life he lives, he lives to God. And I can reckon. That's what that word consider means. It means to logically consider yourself now dead to the power of sin. Stop thinking you're under the control of sin. Stop telling sin you have control over me. Stop thinking about yourself when you wake up in the morning and as you live your day is that I'll just probably sin later or I'll probably just do this wrong or I always do it this way or I have this bad attitude and you're constantly thinking about sin. He's saying you have to logically consider in your mind that you are no longer under the power of sin. And if you do that in Christ Jesus, Paul says you'll live your life towards God. Are you struggling to live your life toward God? It's probably because you don't have a clue what your baptism was really trying to tell you. What it was telling God. Are you ready tonight to maybe commit your life to Jesus Christ? This one who committed his life to you. The one who emptied himself to die. Are you ready to die for him? 
the one who was buried in a tomb, are you ready to have yourself, your old self, stay in that tomb with him and come out a brand new person ready to live in the newness of life? That's what we ought to be living in. That's the Christian joy. It's not that we just have forgiveness, but we have the newness of life. And I want you to have that kind of Christian joy. And you can have the assurance of that as you unite yourself to Christ. If you need to, you can come as we stand and sing.